0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. This episode of Other People is brought to you by the UCLA Extension Writers Program, the largest open enrollment creative writing and screenwriting program in the nation. At UCLA Extension, you can take courses in novel writing, short fiction, memoir, personal essay, poetry, playwriting, writing for the youth market, publishing, you name it. And you can also take screenwriting courses, both feature film and television. The various classes are taught by top-level instructors who have actually walked the walk, publishing books and producing films, and television shows the program features almost 500 courses annually both online and on-site at beginner intermediate and advanced levels with evening weekend and daytime options as well the program also features certificate programs in feature film television writing fiction and creative nonfiction, fiction manuscript and script consultations writing competitions free events nine-month master classes, mentorships, scholarships, and friendly and knowledgeable advisors. For more information, call three one zero eight two five nine four one five. That's three one zero eight two five nine four one five. Or visit them on the web at uclaextension.edu slash writers, or check them out on Facebook and the Twitter. This is a writer's program. You can learn to write better. Go and do it. Oh my God
2: you are not alone you have found other people you and i have a friend in common
1: every stupid thing that a writer could do i've done
0: i think it's really beautiful jake stated what a struggle you know it was incredible you know it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there
1: and now here's your host brad listing Just one person at just one time, Okay, (laughs) everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is about people who write things. This is about things that people write. Thank you for being here. Thanks for tuning in. It's uh, currently nighttime, and I'm a little bit fatigued. Uh, I'm a little edgy. I feel, uh, I guess you could say, a little slap happy. I had one of those days uh, where I got some work done. I got words on the page. I made a little progress, uh, yet something isn't quite right. Like something doesn't feel quite right. Uh, I can't really articulate it that well. I feel like I've got some characters, perhaps, who aren't fully three-dimensional yet uh, in this book that I'm working on. Uh, I've got uh, plot issues, perhaps. And I also feel like uh, possibly 85% of my writerly existence can be defined by uh, plot issues or the fear of having plot issues. Otherwise, uh, I had kind of a weird week, uh, chronologically speaking. Uh, The 4th of July on Wednesday, right in the middle of everything, that sort of messed me up, uh, you know, cause you have this holiday midweek and then it's over and then you have, uh, the rest of the week and, uh, it kind of made Wednesday feel like Sunday and it made Thursday feel like Monday. It made uh, Friday, uh, to a bit of a lesser extent feel like Tuesday and uh, it just sort of messed with, uh, my rhythms and, uh, holidays have a tendency to do that. And I think that's why they frustrate me a little bit. Uh, you know, I tend to be opposed or not opposed, but just frustrated by holidays uh, which I think i 've said before, and you know don 't get me wrong i 'm glad for the time. I like having a little time off, I like to relax, I like to hang out with friends. I would just prefer to choose uh, when that time happens you know i 'm not a huge fan uh, of these like enforced group activities or enforced celebrations i never I never have been uh, a huge proponent i don 't like, for example, opening gifts while sitting in a circle with everybody watching me because I feel like some sort of performance stress you know, what if I don't like the gift and that kind of thing. Uh, and, and at the same time, I don't like watching other people open gifts. I find that stressful as well. Uh, and I don't like being told, uh, that today is a day that we've all got to wear certain colors and do certain things and act a certain way and so on and so forth. Uh, but I might be overthinking it, which is what
0: I do. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature,
1: Go to your happy place For a happy price Go to your happy price price Priceline Anyway, my guest today is Seth Greenland. He is a writer. He is a playwright. He is a screenwriter. Very accomplished guy. Uh, The Bones, his debut novel, was published by Bloomsbury in 2005. His second novel, Shining City, uh, was also published by Bloomsbury. That one came out in 2008. And now, his latest novel, The Angry Buddhist is available from europa editions the angry buddhist that pretty much says it all so uh let's get right to it this is me right here talking to seth greenland about anger uh and buddhism and some other things as well
2: uh i'm i'm a lot less angry than i used to be uh when mellows with age generally speaking i've found uh and so far as being a buddhist uh, I know a little about Buddhism. Uh, my wife, who is not a Buddhist either but is a very serious student of Buddhism, has taught me a fair amount about it. and uh, that was actually where the uh, the uh, the book originated really in the uh, the Buddhist knowledge I had accrued from my la- from my wife.
1: Okay. So, because it's interesting to hear you split that, because I feel the same way. Like, I always I always say that if I had to lean one way in, in the direction of an organized religion, I would lean Buddhist. Like, it's the most, it makes the most sense to mm-hmm. me. But I'm always careful to qualify by saying I'm not a Buddhist, because I'm not, like, in a temple. Right. And I'm, I'm not meditating every day. Right. no No, I, I would love to be. Right. I have, it's like some sort of ideal. Sure. The thing that I would like to be doing. But, uh... I mean, it sounds like that's the case for you. Like it's it's sort of like a, it's like a North star in some way, but it's not like a, it's not an actual formal thing.
2: Well, what my wife has done in her work, what she does is she's a former corporate lawyer who gave that up and now teaches, uh, meditation to children and she teaches adults how to teach children how to meditate. And the way she did that was to, uh, take Buddhist practices, which she studied extensively and, uh... Develop a secular approach to these practices, so without uh, the religious component that one finds in Buddhism, which of course is a religion, although some people will tell you it's not. I firmly believe that it that it is, and uh, and it's called mindfulness when it's when it's uh, propagated in the West by all these people who are doing it now. And uh, what I've learned is uh, how to use these techniques in my day-to-day life in a way that uh, enables me to deal with. Some of the uh, the more difficult
1: feelings that arise. Uh, it- each day, so take really. me so take me through it. let's say you get angry. like like what, how do you like you know just well, use for, like an-
2: I mean, for example, you know you you' you're standing in line at the post office and uh, you' what you've been waiting twenty minutes already and you find that the guy in front of you has uh, six hundred envelopes. He intends to put stamps on each one of them. <laughs> uh, they're all going to different places so they require a different postage right and you're going to be standing there for another hour while this idiot, figures out what he's got to do and uh, I can't deny that I won't f- have feelings of incredible anger arising when that happens but because uh, I can use these practices now I can manage my anger in a better way than uh, I might have done in the past where I really might have had a, an urge to just you know beat the crap
1: out of a guy <laughs> uh, now I could kind of watch that urge rise uh, observe it and let it drift away and so that and you do that just by like focusing on the breath and is that what you do what are the mechanics of it
2: the, the mechanics are you focus on a physical sensation and the breath is the easiest part you could focus on the soles of your feet the palms of your hands you could focus on your elbows or the top of your head but the easiest thing to do because it literally calms you down like i'm doing right now is you focus on the breath just in slowly out slowly, and your actual blood pressure will be will be affected by that. It's a remarkable thing. It's a physical transformation. And I, by the way, am hardly a guru of this, nor do I pose as one. And I, I'm a, you know, there's an expression in Buddhism: beginner's mind, which is uh, the person who knows nothing but approaching the teachings with an open heart. And I think f- forever I'll be somebody who has beginner's mind because I don't think I'll ever become a master practitioner, but. So much of this is just about, uh, this is going to sound really hokey, but so much of it is about just being on the path. By being on the path, by having the desire to do it, you can achieve results. We we don't have to all be the Dalai Lama. Right.
1: Right, right, right. I mean, and the other thing too, and like this might be, I might be misspeaking here, but it's also, there's a simplicity to it. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's hard to do in practice, but like what you're talking about, uh, these are not tricky things conceptually, you know? It's
2: remarkably simple and it's non-doctrinaire and it's uh, it's almost a, a how-to kind of a thing. It's 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 lessons for living, literally, really. It's how do, how do we deal with the difficulties in our life? What You know, a little thing like, you know, if you're a kid and you don't do well on a test, how do you deal with the feelings that arise with that? Or, or how do you deal with losing a parent? When you're older, or how do you deal with your own the prospect
1: of dying? How, how do you deal with losing a parent? And do, you know, how it's do you hard. deal with the, the, like the super heavy stuff?
2: It's the super heavy stuff is incredibly difficult to deal with, and you go you go through you know it's a, it, it's boy we're getting this is getting into it right away. Uh, you deal with it by experiencing it, knowing that it will pass, and trying not to become attached to it. I lost my father a year and a week ago. It was one of the most difficult things I've ever gone through, and I'm still going through it. But I'm much better now than I was uh, 11 months ago, or even six months ago, or even three months ago. And it's important to recognize, and this is one of the things that Buddhism teaches, is the temporary nature of all things. And to really understand that in a visceral way uh, allows you to... Continue to move forward and to not to not drown in whatever feeling that you're having Um, to know that happiness is temporary and that that grief is temporary and that things pass and we survive and go on. And the, the danger is to get snagged or to let your to be to be ruled by your neuroses and to not recognize them for what they are, which is just shit going on in your head. And everybody's got that. And it's important to understand that that never really stops. I think a beginning meditator will sit down and be astonished to find that they just can't stop thinking. They can't stop at all. They've got a melange of thoughts bouncing around in their head. It just seems endless. And of course, it is endless. And what you develop as you develop a meditation practice is the ability to stand back and to observe the thoughts and to watch them and to see them rise and to look at them and to examine them and then to see them pass. And then something else arises. And it's an endless process. And when when thoughts aren't arising
1: anymore, unless you're just a perfect Buddhist master, I think it means you've died. Right? Well, that's the thing, too, is that I feel like sometimes like the initial conception of meditation uh, for people who are just entering it or who are on the outside looking in is that it's about cessation of thought. It's and people get Yeah, people get frustrated. They're like, I'm doing it wrong. I'm still thinking. You know? no, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, of course, you can never stop
2: thinking. Particularly, you know, guys like us, people who do what we do, creative people, and not, and not really just creative people, really. I'm sure accountants, too, will always have numbers running through their heads. Some, something's always going on. It's the nature of being human. And it's, it's how do we deal with what can be these overwhelming interior lives that we have. And meditation is a terrific way to deal with it for a lot of people it's prayer prayer is is great uh for for the certain kind of uh person who wants to embrace god and have god play a role in their lives uh i prefer meditation i think it's uh and what's great is if you are a religious person and and you believe in god and you have that practice then you can still meditate it doesn't deny god to meditate really anybody can do it the most christian christian or the most jewish jew or the most Muslim Muslim or the most Buddhist Buddhist, the, And I speak of Buddhists who are practicing the religion, not just the ones who are meditating. But what's amazing about meditation is truly anyone who's sentient can learn the practice and it will help them. So how often do you do it? Every day. Do you do it every I day? I don't necessarily sit in the cushion every day, but I live this.
1: Okay. So
2: like walking meditation? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. When I, I hike and walk my dogs when i sit at a stop sign do you know it's funny because i've become technologically addicted frankly to the point where i think i'm about a week away from the betty ford Center. <laughs> and and i'll reach for my iphone and check my email and that's a great cue to just take a breath
1: right really i've i've heard that too like when the phone rings just consider yeah. it a bell <laughs> no
2: no it's exactly right that's a great uh, a great formulation another one is every time you put on your socks Take a moment. Remember that that sock moment in the morning. Right. You know, but just to slow down, feel what's going on inside you and around you, even if it's only for 10 seconds, but just get the sensation and then go forward. And it's, uh, I think it's a pretty efficacious way to live.
1: And then what about writing? Like, what about work wise? Like, how do you think? Because I've always said, you know, to me, it makes some sense. Um, not only for all the reasons you just discussed, but also because of the, the, the such strong similarities with what you have to do as a writer. You have to sit there, and you have to sort of weather the storm, the barrage of thought, and get yourself into um, a creative mode of being. Like, do you, am I off track there? Does Do you find that it informs your work or helps your work at all? It helps my work in that it gave me
2: a subject for my last book. Uh, <laughs> so it helped my work in a very significant way in that sense. But in terms of my... Uh, day-to-day, uh, approach to trying to be mindful in my life and writing, um, I wish I could say that I saw some kind of connection and that it helped me, but writing is such a, uh, a stormy internal process and the whole idea of attention on your work to me is I, there's a wrestling match that goes on in my head whenever I work and it's always gone on for the entire time I've been a writer which is my whole adult life and uh, my practice and mindfulness has not affected it one way or another really Do you know if you do what you and I do uh, you, you have to have terrific powers of concentration to begin with uh, just to sit there and face the blank page or the screen or whatever mode you use to work uh, and I, I only wish that uh, my ability to concentrate in in life, which is greatly improved with mindfulness, uh, carried over into my writing, where where I really fight the uh, the need to just do everything, whether clean the garage or my desk or walk the dogs,
1: check or... the check the goddamn email yeah. every. <laughs> oh, it's crazy! It's crazy. the The, inter- the internet has
2: has really uh, been a uh, just a bane in so many ways, it's so many ways, really. I've,
0: have
1: you heard of that uh, that software that like blocks you out of the Internet?
0: I don't
2: have the ability to do it. I, yeah. Just, yeah, I haven't gotten there yet. It's, I was talking to my daughter about it just the other day, as a matter of fact. And you know, I have all these excuses why I haven't done it because a lot of times you'll want to check a fact and you go right. on the Internet and that kind of thing. But I probably should do something like that because I, I'm, I'm, I'm r- relatively productive, but I think I would be... Uh, uh, I I'd, I'd, I would have produced a lot more, were I not quite so internet addicted.
1: Well, and that's the thing too, is that you'll catch yourself, you know, just sort of like when you you'll catch yourself uh, getting tangled up in thoughts or whatever when you're sitting there on the cushion or wherever you are. Uh, if you're uh, you know all of a sudden you're working on your novel and all of a sudden like five minutes have gone by and you're like three pages into the web and you're like how the fuck did i even get online
2: oh absolutely yeah, yeah it's
1: crazy and 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 it's unfortunately it's given us
2: that out we can go down you know the web it's like the, it's this kind of abstract games of shoots and ladders that we play right. with ourselves where what you really should be doing is getting from this paragraph to the next paragraph in a in a in a pleasing way when you're just checking what's on slate.com or what your amazon ranking is <laughs> it's it's insane and and so bothersome and embarrassing I shouldn't even be talking about it in public
1: (laughs) frankly no we need that we need it because i feel the same way i think there's a lot of people listening who probably can relate you know it's yeah i
2: think i think writers uh, there needs to be a support group for internet addicted writers the only trouble was it would have to be be meeting i think in the staples center probably (laughs) right in this town at least so many
1: of us it's crazy so now what do you think about um i mean the, the the book is called the angry buddhist so um you know, there's something satirical happening there, and I think that, especially in, uh, maybe especially in Los Angeles, I think San Francisco might also qualify. Um, it, it can. Th- there is opportunity for mockery where you have, um, you know, a certain kind of quote unquote spiritual person. Do you know what I'm saying? Who has all the trappings? They have all the latest gear. Do you know what I'm saying? I like, do. like was that any part of the root of it for you? Well, the t-
2: first, I'd like to corrected impression that certain people have which is that the it's the title is satirical in any way or that it it makes fun of buddhism it i I don't think it's a satirical title it's a it's oxymoronic and it's funny but i don't think it's satirical and i'm not in any way disparaging or making fun of buddhism the buddhism that i write about in the novel is i'm pretty serious about it it's it's presented i hope in a compelling and and somewhat amusing way because the, the the main character who is the angry Buddhist is, is studying it, you know, online with a, a <laughs> woman whose who's instant message handle is Dharma girl. So
1: yeah, they're, they're, which seems of the moment I mean, com- like, entirely plausible completely and very real. And people
2: do teach that kind of thing online, but it came about because uh, I had a friend who was a deep, deep practitioner, uh, very serious student of Buddhism, uh, like doing like the thirty day meditation retreats uh, and all that stuff. Longer than that, yeah, really, yeah. Went off and lived in a in an ashram for a long time, and uh, was a very very serious practitioner. Studied it and read a lot, and really just knew everything about it. And he was the angriest guy, <laughs> and no matter how much he meditated, he couldn't get a, He couldn't get away from his anger. He could not outrun his anger.
0: Oh God! It was
2: like a shadow yeah. that he just. No matter the harder he ran the closer his anger would stay with him, it seemed. And uh, my wife and I would talk about this guy, and my nickname for him was The Angry Buddhist. (laughs) And this was years before I had the idea for the book. And it was just a phrase that that popped into my head, and I thought was just a a perfect description of, of this guy.
1: So what, I mean, that's... That frightens me to think you can go to an ashram, you can do all this, you can do all this hard work, and the anger's still there. Like, Absolutely. How do you deal with it? Well, you know?
2: it's about, as we were saying before, it's really about shifting your perspective. You, if you're an angry dude, you're, you're an angry dude. It, that's not going to change. What's going to change is how you deal with your anger, Right. really. Can you cope with what happens to you when anger arises? uh we are who we are we can't get away from that it's fundamental to our dna really uh what we can do is find means to compensate for our deficiencies uh i think that anger there's righteous anger when bush was president i was angry a lot i felt it was very justified sometimes i get angry and it's not so justified little things will get me angry day-to-day things um I'm a lot less angry than I used to be, but I have anger and it comes up, but things that I wish it wouldn't come up at. And uh, because of these practices, I have gotten better at, at dealing with it. And it's interesting because you find in social situations, perhaps where years earlier, I might have taken the bait and risen to an argument. I'll be able to step back now and watch myself and watch that feeling rise within me and maybe not have to get the last word and maybe not have to contradict that person and maybe not have to be the one who's right. And I'm still the same guy. Uh It doesn't mean- I'm still right. I mean- <laughs> No, what I mean you say is I can still be an asshole in my head. Right. But better that I not be an asshole in this encounter. Right. Really. And speak it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, what's great is it, it helps you deal with all these rough things that you have going on inside you because we can be very charming on the surface and inside us sometimes we're considerably less charming and what this kind of thing does whether it's buddhism or secular mindfulness is it does allow you to deal with what you've been dealt by the universe in terms of your dna
1: right right i mean yeah, it gives you a method of recourse because some people just genetically get dealt a, a, a rougher hand of cards.
2: Sure, you sure. Know? And also, look, there are people who've had really rough upbringings. They've been, they've been abandoned or they've been abused or all kinds of shitty things have happened to them. So they've got a really uh, complicated in, interior landscape. And these kind of practices are very helpful for that kind of person. You know, it's so often when someone turns to God, it's for those kind of reasons. And uh, for... Me, the, the mindfulness piece is a uh, is I, I won't say a substitute. It's something else. It's how I choose to deal with this kind of thing.
1: And and um, I was reading on the nervous breakdown actually an interview you did with uh, I'm going to script the pronunciation of his last name. We'll call him Gary. Gary, yeah, Gary Persesipi. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think that's how you pronounce it. <laughs> but uh, you were saying that you know you you and your wife came into the study of mindfulness. Um, in the wake of an illness.
2: Yeah, so. it was a uh, really funny story. I had cancer.
1: <laughs> Hilarious.
2: <laughs> and, uh, it, was, it was pretty dire. It was about uh, nearly 20 years ago, and uh, my wife was pregnant, and we had a two-year-old, and I was oh. given a diagnosis of stage four lymphoma. And uh, didn't really know how to not freak out, you know, Uh, which I think is a natural reaction. And I had heard that uh, meditation uh, might help. I think somebody suggested it to me. I can't remember who. And uh, I said to my wife, we're going to learn how to meditate. Come with me. And I... How soon after the diagnosis was this? Within within a week or two. Very soon. I, I immediately... Began investigating every alternative modality available to me when when I got this diagnosis and and all kinds of things and meditation was one of them. So we went to the Zen Center in New York City and uh, and Zen Buddhist meditation is the strictest form of meditation. It's sitting on the cushion with your back ramrod straight and they really don't fool around. And I had that's had, the Suzuki, is that right? Or I, you know I don't. No, or the guy, actually, the Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind guy. That I was- I don't know, but it was what it's 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 whatever the orthodox Zen is that they teach in New York. I I'm, as I said before, and we'll say again, I'm not an expert, but it was the most orthodox version of Zen, being taught by some Roshi who had grown up on Long Island, who you know was a, a white guy. But who knew his his Zen Buddhism, and uh, we did. We were there for one evening and uh, learned the basic precepts of uh, of meditation in that evening. And uh, what's interesting is uh, I was I, I'm very good at following instructions, so I was able to sit down uh, for 20 minutes the first time and, and, and meditate. Not that I got into any kind of deep meditation or that I liked it. I didn't like it. I hated it. But uh, we, were, we were all facing out rather than facing center. And about 10 minutes into the meditation, I heard whoosh behind me and someone had run out of the room. Like their hair was on fire. So I wanted to look at the look amateur. Who's this person? And I of course wanted to catch my wife's eye so we could have a little laugh and uh, at the expense of, of this rookie who, who couldn't cut it. And uh, you know, t- another ten minutes went past and the twenty or twenty five minutes we were sitting ended and the guy hit the gong and I looked around for my wife and her cushion was empty and I realized it was she who had gone running out of the room. And I only tell that story because because I have remained a rookie for 20 years, and she has become not just a serious practitioner, but a teacher and an author who wrote a book about teaching... Meditation to kids that Simon and Schuster published and is now in its ninth printing. So What's, she, it called? What's it called? It's called The Mindful Child. Okay. And, and her name is Susan Kaiser Greenland. And so she became basically she's world famous in this world right now. And now. She she lectures all over the globe. And and I'm of course the idiot that I always was when it comes to this, but I go at it in my in my way. And uh, Susan, on the other hand, is truly an expert. But we—it all began at the same place in my practice and her practice—the same evening in Manhattan that two decades ago. Wow! And do you feel like that helped? I mean, obviously that that was beneficial in terms of recovery. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I can't say that it was beneficial biologically, but it was certainly beneficial in the sense that it helped me to stay calm in some incredibly difficult situations. Okay. Uh, yeah. You know, stuck with needles hundreds of times, uh, being in MRIs, you know, which is like being stuck in a lead pipe for, for, you know, half an hour when you're taking pictures of your guts, uh, just all the stress and strain that goes with thinking you might die when you're, you know, 36 years old.
1: Oh my God. So, uh, what kind of perspective did that give you? You know, cause I'll just tell you from my perspective. And I think from a lot of people who haven't gone through something like that, you imagine that if you did. Like maybe you would get something from it. Like if if you had it and then you survived it, do you, you know do. what I'm saying? Do well, it, you get a lot. I mean, it's funny because people I've heard I, I read all the cancer literature. That was one of the ways
2: I dealt with was by reading everything that had been printed. And uh, so many people would say, "Oh, you know, I'm the, the survivors, not the dead people, because they can't speak." <laughs> but the survivors would say, oh, "I'm glad I had cancer. It taught me a lot." Well. I'm not fucking glad I had it. <laughs> it was a horror show. Yeah, I wished I'd never had it. Right. It was really terrible experience. Uh, and mine wasn't even that bad. It wasn't like I had to have a bone marrow tr- transplant or something like that. But I had a lot of chemotherapy and I was hospitalized a couple of times and it was, it it got pretty dodgy there. So it was a, it was a rough experience. And what I brought out of it was. Uh, Perspective and appreciation. Uh, Perspective in the sense that um, you know it was hard for me to take certain things seriously after that.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, You know, I was in a meeting, uh, at a pitch meeting at an agency, a big Hollywood agency, a couple of years ago. Uh, uh, An actor client of theirs and I were doing a pilot, and the agents wanted to hear it beforehand. And we're sitting around this big agency table, and seven or eight agents are facing us, and one of the agents says to me. Don't be nervous. You know, that, that subtle way that sometimes somebody will try to undermine you. you right. Yeah. Don't be nervous, Seth. And I'm thinking, dude, I'm not fucking nervous. <laughs> don't worry about you me. You want to see nervous? Yeah. You know? <laughs> don't worry about me. And it it gave me that perspective, which has been – and that has been a gift. I mean, I don't buy that cancer as a gift crap. But but that was a gift. And, and I've had that perspective for 20 years. And I – look occasionally you lose it and you you'll sweat something stupid because you're human and none of us ever totally change right but but my perspective is is one now of somebody who's been through a really really difficult uh, thing and I understand that most things are uh, will just get through yeah. really you smile and take a step and 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 get through it, and so it's hard for it's hard for me to sometimes listen to people complain about silly things, and and also it's it's hard for me to I'm not good at small talk, and and I find the older I get, the worse I get at small talk. Actually, uh, the friends I have are based on the uh, the ability to have conversations about uh, actual stuff, actual stuff, and not that we can't talk about movies or a TV show or that kind of thing. I mean, we can certainly talk about trivia too, but, but it's gotta be in the context of talking about something that's, uh, that's compelling in, 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 a, a deeper way.
1: Really. Well, and then what about like, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I just feel like, uh, you know, especially since it's an election year and I'm thinking socially and talking about stuff that's really substantive, um, uh, political conversation, uh, and politics is kind of at the, you know, involved with your book, but like when you get into political conversation, Like, how do you deal with that?
2: Well, that's actually actually, that's a terrific question because I find that I'm I'm a progressive. I, I support President Obama. I think he's done a remarkable job under incredibly difficult circumstances. So let me state that in front. But when I hear people talking about how. Oh, everything's going to go to shit if Romney gets elected and the Supreme Court justices he's going to appoint are going to be a disaster. Well, that's all true. I mean, I think think he probably will be terrible for the economy and I probably think he will appoint terrible Supreme Court justices and I think he will be a disaster on a number of levels if he wins. But by the same token, I think that maybe it's because I'm the age that I am, but you see that things are cyclical and one movement rises, and then it falls, and the next movement rises and it 's important, I think, that we see ourselves in, as as part of this larger continuum because if we can 't we can you can just get lost in in the freak out and that 's not to say that if a a fascist movement rises and assumes power we shouldn 't all get freaked out about that and not say, oh, it's a cycle and it'll go away. Yeah, that's an entirely different thing. But <laughs> right. but that's the perspective. We live we live in a democracy. This is a land of law. Uh, if America is fundamentally a fair society. Uh, yes, the income gap is widening between rich and poor. But basically, if you look at this place objectively, uh, you rare it's rare that somebody is serving decades in jail on trumped up. Charges, and let's not go into the Guantanamo cul-de-sac right now. <laughs> for that's a whole other thing. But, but for the most part, uh, we—you're uh, free to change jobs. You're free to—if you commit a crime, you—you you have a trial. Uh, this is a—it's a pretty good place. So, when things tilt to the left or they tilt to the right, ultimately, uh, this is still the country that most of us want to live in, I think. And that's, uh, th- that comes with uh, having perspective. And part of that is is having a practice. And part of it is just being older, too, I think. I was hot, more hot-headed uh, politically when I was younger. And you just uh, get worn out after a while. Well, that, too, exactly. Well, Because you see enough. I mean, you know, it's funny because you think about what Roosevelt did in the, in the 30s and 40s and, and how radical that was, and particularly in the context of the time uh and then you compare what the the hard right wants to do now the Grover Norquist's and the Paul Ryans and and those guys and it's the right wing equivalent of what Roosevelt did back then it's the vitiating of the of the state and of government power and it's it's the pendulum really it's not like they want to say it's not like they're saying let's have a king let's have let's have uh change the laws where you can be Held without trial, they don't want to do that. It's all within the context of the Constitution, which has abided for, you know, two hundred and you know,
1: thirty odd years now. Well, so I want to uh, before we transition. Mm-hmm. I write on that math. Uh, I think so. Two hundred plus. Two hundred plus years. Plus years. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no. Before we, we uh, you know, transition into other stuff, I wanted to uh, ask about your wife's work a little bit more. Sure. About, perhaps a little selfishly because I have a young child. Mm-hmm. But uh, just you know, if you could briefly uh, discuss, how do you teach a young kid to meditate?
2: Well, it's incredible. First of all, you can't get uh, attached to the idea that they're meditating. What you can do though is, and by the way, she teaches children as young as four, okay. which is remarkable. I was going to ask that too. When do they start? Well, you hear about it and you think it's a magic trick and she puts a spell on them or something. But basically what they do when they have little cushions that the kids sit on and they'll sit in a circle and what they will do is just quiet their minds and themselves and settle down to do what we were talking about before, which is concentrate on a on a part of their body. They'll concentrate on their knees or they'll concentrate on their stomach or or they'll concentrate on their shoulders or on their noses. Just the idea of helping them concentrate, that's what she does. And if they can sit there for 30 seconds or for a minute or a minute and a half or two minutes in quiet, well, are they meditating? No one knows. And sometimes it can go longer than that. She can get four-year-old kids sitting for five minutes sometimes, which, you know, you've got a young kid. You know how extraordinary that is. Right. And and it's it's... I think the problem is when you attach to the idea that they have to be meditating. What they really have to be doing is being aware of what's going on inside of them and around them in a quiet way they have to be attending to it if they're doing that that's what you want them to do because that will lead perhaps to a meditation practice when they're older but more importantly will lead to them being better people better in social settings and better with themselves
1: right right and then it's okay so with your children did it did it did it take like did they meditate yes it took neither of them sit on the cushion but they are both
2: remarkably self-contained calm people. And I'm convinced it had to do with the example that Susan set for them around the house. Um, I think it was, there was a a bit of the, the you know, the, the cobbler's children go shoeless because both both of our kids really pushed back actually and didn't, didn't particularly want to do it and didn't take to the idea of having a formal practice. But I see how they carry themselves and I see how they function. And I know they got a lot through osmosis. And of course, Susan did sit with them and Taught them, and that's not something they like to talk
1: about. Uh, And I don't try to engage them on the subject. But again, I do see it in their behavior. Sure, sure. Um, Okay, so let's get to you. I'm interested to know where you're from. Like, what's like, what's your uh, you know your childhood? I grew
2: up in Scarsdale, New York. Uh, I went to public school there, Scarsdale High, and uh, very typical suburban upbringing. Where's Scarsdale? It's 20 miles north of New York City. Okay. Uh, near Cheever land, but with more Jews. Okay. <laughs> uh, Cheever lived in Austin and, uh, we were not as close to the Hudson river. We were further, uh, west, west or east. I have my geography. We, at, at any rate, we were further away from the river. Sure. Um, but, uh, as I said, pretty typical, uh, suburban upbringing. I, uh, you know, played basketball, baseball, football. I read a lot. I was a reader from an early age, um, I was a social kid, uh, ran around uh, with my friends. Um, there were woods back then. We'd play in the woods. I mean, it was very, it was as Tom Sawyery as it could get in the suburbs. This was before there was rampant development everywhere. So there were swaths of woods.
1: That's and, what I had too when yeah. I was growing up. Where were you, where are you from? I was, well, I'm thinking in Milwaukee. I, I uh-huh. split my childhood between Wisconsin and Indiana. Oh, but okay. in Wisconsin, I just remember... Like skating on the frozen creek. No, exactly, and, you know, exactly.
2: We would skate on the ponds right. around there, and uh, you know, go hiking along the the. I mean, this is going to sound funny. The Bronx River, yeah, right. which was suburban by the time it got to where we were, uh, but it was a very you know very outdoor kind of a, a childhood. I was uh, not terribly interested in being in school. I think I was a pretty typical boy. Uh, there were subjects math science I wasn't interested in I think today they might have medicated me uh, <laughs> uh, which sounds funny but I think is maybe is true sure. Um, I remember in junior high school getting a particularly bad report card and sitting with the uh, the guidance counselor and my parents who got called in. That's how bad it was my parents got called in and I had been labeled an underachiever. And I was 12 at the time. I'm a big believer in labeling children. I think that's a really good, it's really healthy to label children. Because that doesn't stay with them. It's
1: a perfect age, too. That doesn't
2: stay with them for the rest of their fucking lives. (laughs) To tell a 12-year-old he's an underachiever, that's great. it's right at the dawn of adolescence, if you can get that label in there. Yeah, Yeah. you asked me if I still had anger? I'm being mindful right now. Okay, so yeah, thank you, (laughs) Scarce, for that label. Um, but somehow I overcame that. I persevered and overcame that and uh, you know, went off to college and I uh, was an English major in college and uh, editor of the school paper. And uh, got out of college, and I'm giving you the whole bio as quickly as I can. But where did you go to? Where did you go to college? Uh, I was an, an undergraduate at Connecticut College, which okay. is a small liberal arts college in New London, Connecticut. And, right. And uh, got out, and I thought I wanted to be in newspapers, and got a job as a copy boy at the Daily News in New York City, which was kind of the model of the Daily for the Daily Planet and Superman. It was like a real old school. Urban tabloid and uh, worked there for about six months, realized the newspaper game was not for me and uh, applied to NYU Film School. And uh, this was uh, the end of the 70s and uh, went to NYU Film School and got a degree from there and came out to...
1: What about classmates? Were you classmates with like...
2: Yeah, Jim Jarmusch was the year ahead of me. Spike Lee was the year behind me. Uh, and you, were you in classes with these guys? Uh, Spike I knew from the equipment room. Okay. And Jarmusch was just around... Uh, saw him every day Tom DiCillo was there then Who made a, an incredible indie film Called Living in Oblivion Which if your listeners haven't seen Should go rent One of the great indie films ever made I think about an indie director making a movie Have you ever seen that movie? No, I haven't It's it's terrific, Living in Oblivion But anyway, he was he was there when I was there uh, I think one of the Coen brothers Was in the undergraduate department at that point A lot of talented people running around Sure And uh and it, we made films, and this was right before the video really exploded. So we were making sixteen millimeter films, working with film, uh,
1: like like actually cutting physical, yeah, film. cutting
2: physical film. Right. I mean, it's like crazy. Around, you felt like <laughs> Matthew Brady. I mean, it was like the Civil War. It feels, it feels like it was one hundred and fifty years ago, right? And of course, the Lower East Side was being born as the Lower East Side around that time. And, you know, the Ramones were playing around the corner at CBGBs. And there was a big, big underground film scene, which was just starting that. I mean, one of the films that Jarmish made, uh, Permanent Vacation, was one of the first big, really, kind of underground movies to get any kind of attention. I mean, there had been underground movies before, you know, Maya Dern and Jonas Mekas and that kind of thing. But sure. the thing that was coming out of the Lower East Side, which became what we think of now as American independent film, was starting, well, it was ground zero, where... at at NYU at that point.
1: That's a good, that's fortunate timing.
2: Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. And it was a terrific time to be there. And I don't know that any of us really understood what was going on then because New York in the seventies was such an extraordinary place. It was in its way. And I think this more each day with the passing of time, but in in its own way, it was like Paris in the twenties. It was an incredible artistic scene back then because, you know, the city had gone down the shitter you know there was that famous daily news headline forward to city drop dead when the city nearly went bankrupt uh, rents were incredibly cheap so artists could afford to live there uh, it was it was just a remarkably fecund place I remember seeing a, a play that Wallace Shawn wrote at La Mama that had a cast of 50 people uh, rock and roll imagine that an off-Broadway play but by Wallace Shawn no less who was kind of a genius with, with that epic sized cast. I mean, th- these were the kind of things that were happening every day. Rock and roll was exploding back then, punk and new wave, right around the corner from our building, which was on East 7th Street. So it was this extraordinarily
1: vibrant artistic scene. And so, uh, how much of it were you conscious of when it was happening, and how much of it in retrospect do you look at and go, holy shit, I was there? I was the more holy shit I was there in retrospect because at the time it was just, well, this was just what was going on. Right.
2: And I was 22, so I had no context. I thought it was normal. Right. <laughs> right. I just thought, okay, you go, you leave college in New London where there hasn't been anything happened since the whaling industry stopped. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you come down to, you know, they're making Scrimshaw up there. That's how up to date, you know, they are in, in that place. And you come down to... Uh, to Manhattan, and all this stuff is going on, and and you know it's interesting because as I mentioned, I had majored in English in college, and I had a particular interest in Paris in the twenties, and Hemingway and Fitzgerald were two of my favorite authors at that point in my life and so Paris in the 20s was very much on my mind when I was 22 years old oh sure and and it seemed like a fairyland it was it was a, a theme park for young artistic geniuses it was uh, just just a just a dirt cheap no I'm talking about Paris though it was almost like brigadoon it couldn't be real yeah. it was it it was a fairy tale and so I thought going down into New York, well this is what's going on, this is what people, young people come to cities and this is normal and it'll be another thing in another gen- well it wasn't another thing in another generation, really. Uh, I don't think there's been anything in New York like that since. And in a way, everything, although you know what, somebody in New York in the 1920s would probably say the same thing because New York in the 20s was was a roiling, boiling artistic cauldron as well. And the 50s, too, to a certain degree. But there was something about what happened in the 70s, the confluence of rock and roll and film and the art scene and, and literature to a lesser extent. What's interesting is a lot of the literature from that period has not really lasted. Uh, punk literature uh, from then, nobody really reads those people for the most part part right now, with the possible exception of the Basketball Diaries. Uh, That's a book that still resonates and still gets talked about. But that period didn't produce a lot of books, I think, that that we realize now were important. But everything it's interesting. else. It's interesting. Yeah. But, it, but everything else, it was, a, it was a gold mine. And as I said, I just thought it was normal. So I was going around trying to figure out where to get money to make my films and how to get actors to be in them and how to have more talent than I had and, and to, to just try to forge some kind of life uh, as a creative person. And, and I was writing articles for the Soho Weekly News back then. As well, So if somebody interesting came into town, uh, an artist or a musician, and I wanted to meet them, I would write about them. And I met Fran Lebowitz that way, uh, who wrote a fantastic book called Metropolitan Life, one of the great humor books, I think, of the second half of the 20th century, these wonderful comedic essays. I met Tom Waits that way, uh, and and this is while I was going to graduate school. And I started working as well. The way you met Tom Waits? Yeah. In New York. Yeah, yeah. I wrote about him for the Soho Weekly News. So I met him at the Chelsea Hotel, and we went and got a drink, and I talked to him for an hour. And then I saw him do a show at the Beacon Theater, and he was so extraordinary. I mean, he's such a remarkably talented guy. Uh, and this was back before his music became uh, what it is today, and it wasn't quite uh, as dissonant and with the the found object kind of things he does now. And it was more uh, kind of dirty ballads. That he was doing back then, and, and he would croon in his tom Waits kind of way and and I was a great fan of his then as I am now
1: actually, and just to sit across from him at the table uh, for an hour and just was there any was there was there a big disparity between the the persona that you kind of had gleaned from his music and the person that you actually sat down with it was the exact same it was it was the exact same I was a, I was a you know a
2: kid at the time and not a serious journalist obviously i 'll and I don't even think I thought I was a serious journalist back then. I wouldn't have had the hubris. But so I didn't know what questions to ask. I was in awe of him. I just wanted to meet the guy. And right. I remember I remember asking him, who were your biggest influences? I mean, could you come up with a more stupid question than that? And he said, Rod Sterling and Moms Mabley. And for years, for years, I thought he was pulling my chain. And then I realized that I don't think he was. Yeah, really. And That's I could sick. see Moms Mabley in him. You know, I got to be honest with you. I don't know who Moms
1: Mabley is. Moms
2: Mabley was a black comedian who only became famous toward the end of her life. She worked on the Chitlin circuit for years. Okay, She was hilariously funny. And I think maybe when she was in her 70s, she made it onto the Ed Sullivan show. But because entertainment was segregated, no white people knew who she was. And of course, it was a perfect reference for Tom Waits. Uh, and Rod Serling is of course Rod Serling. Right. And uh, as I said, I thought it was a joke. And then the deeper you Understand what Tom Waits has been doing all these years you, the more you get that it wasn't a joke at all but it was a kick to meet him and it was great for me to have the opportunity to to write about him for this paper which was kind of a uh, a, a more outre version of the village voice really uh, I think they the people who ran the Soho News thought they were hipper than than the voice, and some some very cool, talented people were, were were writing for them, and it was for me, it was a great entree into that world. I remember Abby Hoffman, who was a '60s radical. I don't know how many of your listeners will know who Abby Hoffman was. She was a very, he was kind of a, a, a Julian Assange of, of the 1960s, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and he was being pursued by the feds for something he had done. I forget what it was. Maybe it was a drug bust. I can't even remember. But he was on he was on the lam, and he had a lot of famous friends. And there was a a rally to to bring Abby Hoffman back from uh, from wherever he was hiding. He was on he had been on the run for about ten years. And I remember at that at that rally were were guys like uh, William Burroughs and Ginsburg and people like that and I covered it for the Soho Weekly News as I remember I'm you know 22 23 years old and and I got to meet all those guys and and you know New York was just an, a nexus of that kind of thing at that point and it was it was a fantastic place to
1: be in to be young then surely really. Well, now, and were you thinking that you were going to be a director? Is that yeah? What you, was. That was the that was the intent. That right? was absolutely the intent, and uh, and I, I did some directing, but life had other plans. Okay. Well, what and how did those other plans actualize?
2: Well, I have had since I was very young a facility for writing, and uh, that became
1: my path. Okay. And I mean, did, was there a moment, or was there something like where where was the? You know that that juncture where you fight, you kind of pivoted out of the, um, you know, uh, directorial pursuits and into writing, and not only not only writing for the screen, but also obviously writing books.
2: Well, like- you know, you
1: walk through the doors that open,
2: and uh, I came out to California, uh, went right after I graduated from school, and I got work very quickly, and uh, doing what I was writing. Uh, I got hired to write a network sitcom. Okay, and. Uh, I had met a producer out in New York at a a political function, actually. uh, Something for People for the American Way. And I got a hold of him when I got out to Los Angeles. And I had written a spec script, and he read the spec script. It was for a show called Cheers, which was new at the time.
1: Oh, wow, okay. It gives you an
2: idea of how long ago this but was. good taste, you know? Yeah, <laughs> I think it was, it was 1982. It was, it was 30 years ago. It's amazing when I think back on it. And uh, this, this producer hired me to write for a show that he was doing, and uh, I never looked back. And I uh, began to do... Uh, I began getting hired to write screenplays and then to... Uh, to kind of get my artistic yayas out because I found writing movies for studios somewhat stultifying creatively at a certain point because remember, this is the 80s and and, and I, at film school, you know, you're emulating, uh, you know, if you're me, you're, you're studying Truffaut and Bunuel and Godard and if it's the Americans, it's Woody Allen and Bob Rafelson and Kubrick and you come out here and all anybody wants to make is Star Wars or a John Hughes movie. And so it was not the, uh, the, the, the hugely creative, fulfilling life that I had foreseen. And, uh, so I started writing plays and, uh, I wrote a bunch of plays and they were produced in regional theaters. And when I felt I had done that long enough and I continued working in Hollywood the entire time, uh, when I was in my forties, uh, I started writing novels and, uh, I wrote The Bones after I had finished doing—I uh, had I had been writing on this show for HBO. I'd finished up doing that uh, and thought, you know, I uh, was an English major. I always wanted to be a novelist somewhere in the deep recesses in my mind that I could never admit exists. And uh, I thought, well, if not now— when I already had one brush with death, right? I didn't want to wait for another. and, uh, and then I,
1: I wrote this novel and uh, I have been doing that ever since. Okay, so what about you know, writing for television obviously has its own discipline uh, mm-hmm. built into it. Like what about that experience uh, informed the writing of the book? Like did you find when you when you sat down to write a novel, were you uh, prepared for it in ways that you might
2: yeah yeah well, it was informed by in several ways it first it, it, the biggest thing that informed it was it was about the television business the book, which is called the Bones is about a uh, the relationship between a comedy writer who has had terrific success but can't embrace his own success because he wants to be an artist. And a comedian who is not as successful as he would like to be because he can 't be put in a box and is hugely talented and resents his lack of success, and each has what the other wants and it 's a steel cage death match between these two guys and um, it was i was I had a certain anger about Hollywood at that point and about how my career had gone in Hollywood. Uh, I was lucky, and I, I feel churlish bitching about it, but the the, sc- the the best screenplays I wrote never got made, and the ones I didn't care about did. And uh, at a certain point, that, that becomes frustrating to a person. It's a frustrating business. Yeah. it's, it's, it's Show business basically is designed to make you cry. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as a colleague of mine said, I wish I could claim that one, but i can 't uh, and uh, and I think I had a lot of feelings about it, and they came pouring out in the bones uh, and I wrote the first draft in six months and it did not change appreciably other than the ending and the original version one of them well i don't want to give away what i changed but but it didn't change appreciably
1: actually had you ever written a pre had you ever made a previous start on the book or was this the just- no
2: i hadn't written fiction since college i i taken a course in college uh and wrote these kind of uh stories that were very uh, i think they would have been at home and kind of Colliers, you know, 1940s magazines for mainstream fiction. I didn't really know what I was doing. I just had a facility for words back then. And I thought I might like to give it a shot. And I wrote a bunch of stories and I didn't save any of them. I don't suspect they were any good. So no, I hadn't really written fiction seriously ever, but what I was doing to warm up every day in my office before I started writing, whatever assignment I was doing was I would write emails to friends. And it occurred to me that the part of the day that I enjoyed the most was the part where I was writing these emails because I would be pretty entertaining writing an email and I would just let it go and they would be in my voice, obviously, because I was writing them and there were no constraints and I could say whatever I wanted about anything and just kind of take off and riff. And I thought, geez, what if I what if I wrote an email and it just kind of didn't stop? Well, <laughs> that would be a book. <laughs> and that's how the bone started, yeah. really. I wrote it to entertain myself and, and to see if I could do it.
1: And so, I mean, mean, six months is a pretty compressed time frame.
2: Yeah, yeah, particularly given the length of the book. So how – like what kind of uh, work schedule were you on? I wrote every day for about six hours. Okay. Uh, Up up early and going or – Yeah, yeah, pretty much up early. Those those are my most uh, productive hours of the day. And uh, I would get to my desk. I would take the kids to school. I would go to my desk, uh, sit there for three or four hours, take a break to eat, and then work a little bit in the afternoon to you know, go over what I had done and maybe push a little bit forward. And it just kept, I was able to keep the flow going. And uh, I think I was I was powered by anger and frustration. And let me tell you something.
1: Those things can work for you. If they could build an engine
2: <laughs> that ran on anger and frustration, right. the oil crisis would be over. <laughs>
1: um, so did you find that that writing work Uh, it was obviously more satisfying. I mean, the the writing of that book. Hugely,
2: hugely more satisfying because you don't have to give it to a director. You don't have to get actors. You don't have to do anything other than get somebody to to read it and say they like it. And uh, luckily that happened. You know, working in Hollywood, you know, you can do these, you know, say you're writing a script for a studio. You can write that script and it can be the best thing you've ever written. And... Ten people might read it, and that could be it if it doesn't go anywhere. And when I say ten people, I'm not exaggerating. Maybe ten, maybe less, really, Uh, not counting your friends who you're forced to read it. Uh, It's an incredibly frustrating thing for somebody who has any kind of uh, desire to express themselves. And for me, this is why I became a writer in the first place.
1: Right. So um – What do you see yourself doing going forward? Like, I mean, is it's going to be a mix, obviously. You're going to continue to work in both? Yeah,
2: well, I hope to work in both. Uh, Showtime uh, optioned The Angry Buddhist, and uh, we're in the process of trying to turn it into a series. Uh, I'm writing the pilot, and uh, we'll see how that goes. And in the meantime, uh, I'm about two-thirds of the way through another novel.
1: Oh, you are? Yeah. Okay. So- so like what's your what's your uh, daily I mean your daily writing practice is pretty much what it always has been six yeah. hours in the six and, hours and, and a day not,
2: it's, I'm not writing as much now uh, I get up and I've got a space that I go to and uh, I'm doing about four hours there uh, most days and I'll go home and sometimes I'll work in the afternoon sometimes not depending upon where I am what I find is when I'm closer to the end of something when I get when I think I'm when I see the barn yeah I can gallop and I can I can really Go Go. quickly at that point and go for hours and hours and hours just to get it done because I'm a big believer. I've I've taught writing a few times and I always teach... Students, finish something. Don't don't kill yourself just to make every word perfect and, and, and act like you're carving stone. Get a draft, right? You know, and then work with that draft because you're going to do ten or twenty or thirty more drafts anyway. Right. So get to the end of that one. And so what I'm trying to do now is get to the end of the draft of, of what I'm working on.
1: And how many drafts? You said you usually go through like ten drafts. Oh, the something?
2: Angry Buddhist was at least twenty drafts.
1: Okay. Because like you're dealing with a large cast of characters, yeah. And you ha- and you have like you know very intricate plot, and you've got to resolve all these different characters in some way. How do you do that without making yourself completely nuts? It's hard. It's 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 difficult because yeah. you
2: know you need to pick up I mean say say you're on page two hundred and sixty and maybe it's a three hundred and fifty page book. You've got to take stock of exactly where each character's emotional life is at the moment you resume on page two sixty after having left off at four in the afternoon the day before and gone home and seen your wife and at dinner with your kids and watch TV at night or gone to a movie or seen friends or whatever you've done and gone to sleep and gotten up in the morning and read the paper and walked the dogs and then gotten in the car driven to your office sat at your desk, booted up your computer, and there you are on page 260.
1: Where was I? Right. And you need to completely reorient. Well, and no, it's, it's how much of your time is spent? Because I, I go through this where I'm like, God, I just worked for five hours, but I would say three of it at least was spent just sitting there.
2: Oh, absolutely. Just absolutely. staring. <laughs> but when I tell myself, and maybe this is facile, but, but I do think that if, if you're a writer and that's what you do, uh, you're working all the time basically, whether or not you're sitting at a desk. See, you asked me earlier about my meditation practice, and I said, well, it's not confined to the cushion. Well, neither is my writing practice confined to the computer. Right? You know, I do feel like I'm working all the time, really, to the point where it's I, sometimes I wish I could shut it off, but I can't. I mean, you see things and you think, oh, I, I'll use that.
1: And, and do you have a certain – I mean, with that in mind, do you have a certain confidence that like, when you reach an, uh, an impasse in the creative process with a book or you get somewhere plot-wise where you're like, I don't know where else to go from here, do you, do you say to yourself – We'll just keep trying or just keep sitting there. It's going to come.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And because I do other things, sometimes I'll put things aside. When I was doing uh, The Angry Buddhist, I was working on a television show at that point. And there was a time where I was doing both. And there was a time where I couldn't do both and had to put The Angry Buddhist in a drawer. So it was uh,
1: – It's. Uh, I forgot your question. What's oh just like how did when you get to an impasse and oh oh an impasse right yeah. so
2: yeah I I find that if if you get to an impasse don't stop writing but perhaps stop writing what you're working on you write a, write a a blog piece or work on a short story or a poem yeah, even it's like or,
1: work sideways yeah but.
2: exactly exactly just keep keep the muscle moving. Uh, you know, you always, if you're, if you're a ball player, you always want to be shooting baskets. You always want to just keep the, keep the movement happening. It's, it's the same thing with your brain. If you're a writer, I think you want to keep, you want to keep things moving, keep the flow going on. Even if, even if the novel isn't happening that day, you know, look, entire weeks go by where I feel like, and this isn't when I'm working on a television show, entire weeks go by where I feel like I, I'm not doing anything good. That'll happen really. I mean, I'm, I'm not uh, one of those Anthony Trollope kind of writers who can sit down before going to the post office to work every day for two hours, and it's all good and all going to be published. I wish I was like that. Right. Uh, no, I can get lost in a cul-de-sac and it can go on for quite some time. But I always will keep returning to it and keep returning to it. And so far, I've managed to finish a lot of, a lot of material.
1: Okay, um, and how did you get your blurb from Larry David? I got to ask you because people want to know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's an old friend of mine. Yeah, just yeah. From back uh, in the back in the day. Yeah, he
2: and I've known each other a very long time, so that was that was not a cold call or something. Like okay, or did or anything like that.
1: He didn't. He didn't just decide to bless you out of the kindness. <laughs> no. You guys know each other. <laughs> no.
2: That is not how it works. I was going to say, no. you know, no, it's I, I've when I was starting out, I tried to get blurbs from some very famous authors, and they all ignored me.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, it's, that's a icky part of the whole process anyway, having no, exactly. to ask, you know, exactly. it's, it's never fun. So it's we, good to go to people that you actually know. <laughs> no, exactly. But you, you've done very well in the blurb department yourself. I got lucky. I got lucky. But I mean, I think it takes a little of that. And I also should, you know, I should say that once you've had to go out with like your hat in your hand looking for blurbs and, you know, I think a lot of authors um, take what I would consider like a healthy view of it where you know you got to help out because everybody needs help oh some absolutely point.
2: absolutely but, you know. and i think yeah and i've i've usually have blurbed when asked and uh, it's interesting i have a quick blurb story is uh when i wrote the bones i wanted nick hornby to blurb it because i thought well he'd be perfect it's uh a book that has comedy in it that's a also a serious story and he was a, an author i like and uh, i wrote him and asked for a blurb and he he wrote back the nicest letter telling me why he couldn't blurb the book yeah, right. i almost would rather have that than the blurb yeah, right you like can actually. i actually, can i actually excerpt this letter and just yeah, put it on I the was, jacket i just thought that he took the time it was lovely
1: yeah yeah i mean there's actually. different there's different ways of doing it but i mean it gets tricky too cuz you you want to like you know sometimes you're really busy and you're trying to give a good blurb but you're not like there's an authenticity issue.
2: Well, there's that. And there's also, I mean, most writers are terrific readers and you're, all, you're reading for yourself usually to just stop and read the book of somebody you've never heard of because they've asked for a, for a blurb. I was pretty presumptuous to go out and do that and to ask the authors who I asked. But you, know, you have to be.
1: Hey, yeah, exactly. You got to aim high, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: Well, Seth, I'll tell you, it's been so fun talking with you. I appreciate you coming on the show and uh, you know, congratulate you on the Angry Buddhist Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Okay, folks, there you go. That is the program. That is Seth Greenland. His book is called The Angry Buddhist. It's out there now from Europa Editions. Go get yourself a copy. Pick that copy up. Take that copy to the cash register and pay for that copy. If you want to find Seth on the web, he's at SethGreenland.com. You can find him on Twitter, at Seth Greenland. He's also on Facebook. This show has a website. It's OtherPeoplePod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. I'm on Twitter at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook page. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And thanks once again to the UCLA Extension Writers Program, today's sponsor. If you are uh, working on a book, whether it's a novel or a collection of short stories or a screenplay of some sort and you want some instruction or some structure, Uh, some discipline, some help, some camaraderie, go sign up for a class. You can attend right here in Los Angeles in person or remotely via the internet. Either way is just fine. And there's no time like right now to get started. For more information, call 310-825-9415. That's 310-825-9415. Or you can visit... Uh, them on the web at uclaextension.edu slash writers or check them out on Facebook and the Twitter. And hey, uh, folks, if you're listening, if you're a regular listener or if you want to be, don't forget to subscribe to this program on iTunes for free. Uh, It's available at iTunes free of charge. It's also available at Stitcher free of charge if you're a Stitcher person. And uh, hey, if you like the show and you're over at iTunes, please take a moment to rate it and review it. Uh, That does help the cause. It takes just a couple of minutes and I would appreciate it a great deal. Okay, Uh, please remember that Edith Wharton once called James Joyce's Ulysses quote schoolboy dribble and that there were 945 booksellers in Paris in the year 1845. Uh, Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, I think I already said that. If I did, I'm saying it again. I'll be back soon uh, with another conversation with another person who has plot issues. Uh, Right now, I think I'm going to go drink uh, some water. And, uh, perhaps, uh, sleep. I think that sounds like a good idea. I think so. I think so.